Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey there, good morning, Crosspoint. And for those of you who are just joining us online for the first time, we welcome you. We're so glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, my name's Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Crosspoint, if you do not know that already. Uh, hey, today we're continuing our teaching series in the book of Romans. Uh, so I hope you have a Bible handy, and I hope you have it turned to Romans chapter 1. Uh, thank you, Peter Dar, for reading the scripture this morning. Hey, if you don't know Peter, um, I just want to introduce him to you. He is the pastor of the South Sudanese Alliance Church that shares our building with us this morning. And we are just so honored that he would do the scripture reading for us today. Uh, also, I just want to let you know there are extensive notes that you can follow along with. Uh, on our website, you can find them, thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes. And uh, it's always good to have those handy so that you can track along, especially because we're doing a deep dive into a, one of the most famous books of the Bible, uh, the book of Romans. Hey, I, I just thought I'd start this morning by just sharing some good news with you. I'm a little late on this good news, and I apologize for that. But I want to give you an update on our Christmas Eve project, because a number of you have been asking about that. As you know, during the month of December and culminating on Christmas Eve, we were raising money for the Tegler Youth Center for their family outreach hub. And our goal as a church community was to raise $2,000 so that they could put this hub together and have a continued impact on the families in our local community. Uh, I just want to say you guys went above and beyond. You raised more than $2,000. As a matter of fact, the grand total this, uh, this Christmas was $3,170. Ah, applause. Yeah, you're not in the house, but uh, you can applaud at home because uh, there's just unbelievable applause happening in the building right now, in this moment. Um, uh, but uh, the additional money the, above that 2000 of course, is going to be used uh, to help with high-need items that they'll have along the way. So, hey, well done. Way to go. Thank you for all of you who jumped in and donated along with us in this project. Uh, well, today's message. Um, I don't know what else to say about this. Today's message topic is God's Righteous Judgment. Yes, I'm sure that you were just waiting to get out of bed this morning, and as you rolled out, you thought to yourself, oh, I hope, I hope I can go to church, and I will hear about them talking about God's judgment. I'd really like to hear about that. Alexa, please, teach me about God's wrath. Okay, Google, play God's Gonna Cut You Down by Johnny Cash. I just want to see if that actually works. If it actually happened in your house and it played, awesome. Okay, um, hey, listen, most of us, most of us, would much rather hear about good news than bad news. Uh, it's like the story of the man who went to see his doctor about some test results, and the doctor said, well, I've got some good news for you, and I've got some bad news. And the guy's like, well, okay, well, I, I think I, we should start with the good news. And the doctor says, well, the good news is that uh, you've only got 24 hours to live. And the man's like freaking out. He's like, the good news, that's good news. If that's good news, what's the bad news? And the doctor says, well, I was trying to get a hold of you since yesterday. Wah, wah, wah. Okay, well, today we're going to be looking at bad news, folks. And the truth of it is, if we're going to get to the good news in the book of Romans, we first have to go through the bad news because that will only magnify the impact and the beauty of the good news that we're going to discover in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
But before we do that today, uh, allow me to do just a really quick recap so that we know where we are at in this series. Uh, The book of Romans, it is a letter. It was written by a man named Paul the Apostle, and he is writing to a small church in the city of Rome, a church of about 100 people that was meeting in about four or five uh, different house groups. And he was writing to them because he was planning on visiting them. But he was also writing them because he was helping them navigate some troubled waters. You see, it turns out there were some tension in the church of Rome, and the tension surrounded two different groups of people. On the one hand, there were what known as the Jewish Christians, and the other hand, there were the Gentile or the non-Jewish Christians. And, and, and a lot of the tension really surrounded a number of the Jewish practices that were uh, being debated over. So things like uh, food restrictions and holy days and, and circumcisions. And a number of the Jewish Christians had assumed that the Gentile Christians should just continue living under the law of Moses and following all of its associated practices. And of course, there were some questions that the Jewish Christians were asking about whether or not God was faithful in keeping his promises. Uh, So Paul was really, he was writing this letter to kind of help them out. And, And this is largely what this long theological treatise that Paul is writing is really all about. This is the undercurrent that's beneath all of what he's saying. Now, Last week, we finished off at the end of chapter 1. And in chapter 1, at the end, Paul was, Paul was explaining why the Gentiles need the gospel. So he talked about how God had clearly revealed himself to all of humanity, had made himself known. Uh, He talked about how God had uh, woven into the very fabric of the natural order his righteous instructions for all people to understand. But people had essentially repressed the truth and instead had turned to idols. And because of that, God's just response was to simply turn people over to their desires. So that the end result was they went deeper and deeper into depravity. And deeper and deeper into fullness of brokenness and hurt. Dislocation from God and dislocation from each other. And that's why Paul would say the Gentiles need the gospel. Well, today's text is actually just kind of a continuation of last week's text. So... Why don't we just dive right into it? Because Paul is talking about judgment. We are going to discover three truths in the text today about God's judgment. Here's the first truth. The universality of God's judgment. What's clear from Paul is that this judgment of God applies to everyone. So so there's not going to be any exclusions. There's not going to be any exceptions. No special treatment. Paul is saying this judgment is actually for the Jew as well as for the Gentile. So just as I said, I mean, in the previous section, Paul was uh, focused on the Gentiles. But now in this section, he's starting to take aim at the Jewish Christians. You'll notice the term, O man, in the text. You know, the the O man that Paul is referring to uh, wasn't really a specific person. This was actually a literary device that Paul was using. It's called a diatribe. And it was something that was commonly used in the literature of his day, particularly among the moral philosophers. Uh, and, and Paul was using this because it allowed people in the audience to overhear a conversation between Paul and an imaginary person. So what that meant is Paul could address this issue without having to confront somebody directly. Rather, they would overhear it indirectly. It was actually a really clever way for Paul to communicate this to the Jewish Christians. But the Jewish Christians, they likely struggled with a couple of things. Number one, a sense of moral superiority, and number two, a sense of overconfidence. See, the Jews 
often believed that they were morally superior to the Gentiles. Uh, and as a matter of fact, the issues that Paul had brought up in chapter 1, these were, these were common criticisms that, that Jews had against the Gentiles, things like sexual practices and, and idolatry. So while Paul was like dressing down the Gentiles, it's likely, very likely, that a number of the Jewish Christians were thinking to themselves, because here's the thing, like, they're sitting in a house church, they're having this letter read to them, Jews and Gentiles are sitting there together, right? Paul's dressing down the Gentiles, it's likely that they were thinking like, oh yeah, Paul. I mean like, yeah, stick it to them. I mean, don't hold back, lay it all out. <laughs> you know, mic drop, Paul is in the house, right? So they're just ex excited that Paul is doing this. But the Jewish Christian also shared an attitude of overconfidence. Because after all, who were they? They were, they, were, they were God's chosen people. They were his covenant people. It was their birthright. And so because of this, they had this, this heightened sense, this overconfidence in their right standing before God. And so Paul is writing to shake their confidence. He wanted to show them that, hey, here's the thing. You are just as lost and you are just as dislocated from God as your Gentile brothers and sisters. And in fact, God is going to judge the Jews as much as he is going to judge the Gentiles. And that you cannot hide behind your birthright. You cannot presume on God's kindness. And so ultimately, really, the larger point that Paul is stating here in these first 11 verses of chapter 2 is that nobody is above judgment. Nobody has privileged status. God's judgment applies to everyone. And I think we can learn a lot from that as followers of Jesus, as we consider our relationship between ourselves and the world around us. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you're from a great Christian legacy. You might have this sense of, you know, entitlement or overconfidence in your position. Paul's saying, listen, no, none of that matters. All of us are under the same judgment. No matter what your family history is, no matter what your socioeconomic status is, no matter what your ethnicity is, we are all under the same banner of judgment. Uh, here's the second truth, the finality of God's judgment. Paul says, there will be a final day of God's wrath. We read about that in verse 5. Now, you might remember from last week, I, I talked about the difference between God's present wrath and God's final wrath. See, Paul has already explained in chapter 1 that God's present wrath is God's present-day response to our failure to acknowledge him and worship him. So, so because we, we turn away from God, he essentially gives us up to our desires, and then his present-day wrath just continues to open the doors and continues to give us the freedom to walk further and further and deeper and deeper into our depravity. So God is essentially saying to all of the world, listen, you want to love something more than me? Okay, have at her. I'm going to open the door, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. But now, in this chapter, if this section, Paul is talking about God's final wrath, not his present wrath. He says in verse 5, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So, so there will be a day where everyone will ultimately have to give an account for how they invested their lives. And Paul is saying, listen, you, could, you can store up treasure for yourself in heaven, or you can store up wrath. But one day, there will be a reckoning. Now, as, 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 as startling as this might seem, it's actually pretty consist, consistent with the rest of the teaching that's in the New Testament. In fact, you might be surprised to know that the one person who spoke the most about judgment in the New Testament was, in fact, Jesus. Jesus taught about it frequently. Jesus taught about it directly. 
And as it turns out, he will also be the one who will return and who will bring about God's judgment. Now, I think it's really important also to point out that in verses 6 to 11, uh, Paul is not prescribing how we should gain right standing with God. Okay, so he's not saying, listen, hey, this is how you earn your salvation. Or he's not saying, hey, we should try to be saved by our good works. Because if, if we try, and that's our strategy, our likelihood of success is non-existent. It's about as likely as a no-armed pole vaulter trying to leap over the sea and tower. Paul is not giving us a recipe on how to win God's favor. He's simply giving us a reality check on where we stand before God. So he's unpacking. This is how divine justice ultimately works by principle. But right now, remember, he's building an argument. He's in the middle of an argument, as a matter of fact, about why we need the gospel. And so he's showing us the problem so that that will ultimately we can discover the solution. And here's the thing. I mean, the moment we start talking about final judgment, suddenly the stakes start getting a little bit higher, don't they? I mean, you start to realize that this dislocation that we have is a very real problem, a problem so large that it needs a God-sized solution. Well, here's the truth, uh, the third truth uh, from Paul, is the fairness of God's judgment. You know, in Romans, uh, you might remember that Paul has been helping us discover how God's own righteousness is revealed in the gospel. So, so Paul has been pulling back the curtain... And he's been explaining how the gospel shows that God is a trustworthy judge and that how God is always faithful in keeping his promises. And so, so that's why Paul is, in, in this section, he's actually making a really strong case for the fairness of God's judgment. He's saying, listen, it's not arbitrary. It, it, it's not biased. Uh, it's fair. And it's fair for a couple of reasons. And here's the first reason. Number one, it's based on a consistent standard. The standard of God's righteousness of God's judgment is his own righteousness I mean he's made this known to everyone this is what he's been saying to up to this point he's woven it into the very fabric of the created and natural order it's not based on public opinion it's not shifting it's not changing it's consistent this standard of God's judgment flows from his very character but second Paul God's uh, Paul is saying that God's judgment is also based on a fair distribution what this means is that God's judgment applies, he applies the same standard to everyone. This is what we would call impartiality. You notice what Paul says in verse, verse 11. He says, God shows no partiality. He also says in verse 6 that God will render to each one according to his works. So Paul's saying, listen, nobody gets a hall pass. Nobody is, nobody is above the law. We all fall under the same judgment, whether we are a Jew or a Gentile. Now, I think, I think that most of us really want consistent and impartial standards in our lives. I mean, when somebody fixes your car, you want it done to the same standard as everyone else. You don't want to be driving out of the, out of the dealership and your tires are falling off. Uh, when you go to Starbucks and they mix your favorite drink, you expect that your overpriced drink will be consistently good every single time, right? You don't want them changing the formula or the recipe at all. We all want fair standards. Now, I can understand that the idea of God's judgment might not sit well with some of us today. You know, I think for some of you, the idea of God's judgment is deeply troubling. I mean, maybe you're, you're listening today and you're, you're deeply concerned about yourself or you're deeply concerned about someone you really care about. 
You're concerned about the dislocation that exists between them and God. And yet for others of you, the idea of God's judgment might also seem, well, kind of repulsive. You might be asking the question, how is it that a loving and good God can be so judgmental? And, and really, this is understandable. I mean, because this idea really does go against the grain of our culture. You see, our, our cultural lenses, they, they often color how we see and interpret our world. And we live in a culture that highly values individual autonomy. You know, that word autonomy literally means a law unto myself. Right? So the, this is why the idea of God judging me can seem so offensive. It feels like, like this is a violation of my very own personal liberties and freedom. Well, you're not alone. I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard for many people to kind of get their heads and their hearts around the idea of a wrathful God. I mean, even the great thinker C.S. Lewis struggled with this. Let, let me read from him. Here's what he says in The Problem of Pain. He said, there is no doctrine which I would, be, would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But, but it has the full support of Scripture and uh, specifically of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the full support of reason. So, so what C.S. Lewis is saying is that even though the idea of God's judgment doesn't feel right, that doesn't mean that it isn't right. So what I want you to consider this morning, what I want to ask you to do, encourage you to do, is just take a moment and just step outside your cultural lenses. Step from behind them. And I want to invite you to consider two questions this morning about justice. The first question is, do you want a world without justice? You know, I think most of us would agree that we want justice in our world, right? It's important that people are held accountable for their wrong actions. I mean, do we really want a world where murderers and human traffickers and pedophiles run free? Do we want a world that turns a blind eye to genocide or to rioting or to racism? Most people will agree that we want justice in our world. But here's the second question. Do you want a God who is unjust? I mean, imagine if God's justice was arbitrary. Imagine if he decided that short people got judged more severely on Thursdays. Or, or skinny people could do whatever they wanted every second Monday. Or, or imagine if God just kind of turned a blind eye to all the hurtful and hateful atrocities on our planet. Listen, a judge who does not judge fairly does not deserve to be a judge. And a God who does not judge rightly is a God who does not deserve to be worshipped. A good God will not turn a blind eye to evil and injustice. He will ultimately bring his own justice to bear. Now, it's also important to remember, you know, and Paul has been kind of building this argument, but it's important to remember that God's final wrath is the ultimate fulfillment of our own desires for autonomy. So Paul's saying is, as we turned our backs on our loving creator, his just response was just to give us over to our desires. And so the more that we push away from God and towards our own independence, the more God says, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. So God's present wrath is the consequence of living a life independent of God. But God's final wrath is the culmination of living a life independent of God. Let me again quote C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know, is it National C.S. Lewis Day? I don't know. But I got two quotes from him. Here's the, here's the other one quote I want to share for you, just because it's so good and so poignant for this. Here's what he says. He says, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God, 
are those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, it wouldn't be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. God's judgment is the ultimate extension of human free will that wants to live independent from God. But thankfully, thankfully, Paul doesn't stop with the bad news. And thankfully, he's ultimately leading us towards the good news. And, and sure, God could have just done that. In his wrath, he could have just continued to give us over and give us over and give us over. And that's the end of the story. But that's not the end of the story. And a loving God couldn't do just that. God's solution to hell was to go through hell for us. And by that, I mean the cross of Calvary. Jesus, the Son of God, was mocked, he was beaten, he was rejected and pierced, he was nailed to a cross, bleeding and suffocating until he gave up his life freely. And he died for the sins of the world so that those who put their complete trust in him might be freed from the penalty and the power of sin. And Paul will, Paul will write about this more later in Romans chapter 5 and verse 9. But here's what he says. He says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Jesus went through hell so that we wouldn't have to. And so instead, with heaven in our hearts, we can begin again. We can walk in freedom. We can have our hope in an eternal life with God. This is good news. Well, so what can we take away from today's text? I mean, I mean, I mean practically, what can we learn about this in, in how we live our lives together in community as followers of Jesus? Well, I think there's a couple of takeaways. The first one is this. Judge lightly. Judge lightly. You know, we're not much different than the Jewish Christians of Rome shaking their heads at the Gentiles, you know, pointing their fingers at all of their, their minor flaws. See, it's, it's actually really easy to find fault in other people. I guarantee you that if you spent an entire day with me, you would find at least five things about me that really annoy you. Guaranteed. As a matter of fact, if in a week, if you spent an entire week with me, you would want my wife Karen inducted into sainthood for putting up with me for almost 30 years. Guaranteed. People make mistakes all the time. But is it my job to be the moral police for every little mistake that people make? Paul reminds us that God is patient with us. God is kind. He is forbearing. So shouldn't we be also? Now, as, as, as it turns out, there, there are many places in Scripture we find out that it's, that it's actually over, okay to overlook minor offenses. Imagine that of other people. So I'm going to walk you through some Scriptures really quickly here this morning just so that you can receive God's permission to overlook the offenses of other people. Here's, what, here's one. Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory... His glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Proverbs 17.4 The beginning of strife is like letting out water, or as some, some of your texts will say, breaching a dam. So quit before the quarrel breaks out. Proverbs 17, 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, 
but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So perhaps, cross point, perhaps we should learn to judge more lightly, to overlook offenses, to be, to be patient and kind and, and tender-hearted, to let love rule the day in our relationships. Now, of course, of course, sometimes we need to address wrong behavior in other people, right? Because sometimes maybe the offense is so big that it's put a barrier between us and somebody else. Or, or perhaps what they're doing is wrecking their own life or it's destroying the lives of other people. Absolutely, we need to step in. We need to have a conversation about that in love and in grace. So, so what about you? I mean, are you someone who is quick to judge? If your answer is yes, then let me give you a follow-up question. What does your urgency to judge reveal about the status of your own heart? You know, maybe like the Jewish Christians or like the Pharisees, you're struggling with a heightened sense of religiosity. Or, or maybe a lifetime of receiving criticism has taught you to dish it back out. Or maybe, maybe, you have just found it difficult to receive grace for yourself. Because let me tell you, if you haven't received grace, it's incredibly difficult for you to give grace. What does your urgency to judge reveal about the status of your own heart? So we should judge lightly, but we should also judge rightly. And what do I mean by that? Well, the right way to judge always, always is to start with yourself. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? See, the starting point of judgment is always here. It's always here, right here with me. And as it turns out, this, this principle comes from Jesus' very own playbook. It comes from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching about what life is like in his kingdom community. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, here's what Jesus says. He says, judge not that you, may, uh, that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice that the log's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, hey, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, Jesus is not saying that we should never, ever judge anybody ever for any reason. Okay, sometimes he does say you will need to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So it's okay to hold people accountable. But the larger point that Jesus is making is that we need to deal with our own stuff first. We need to put our own house in order. You need to first take the speck out of your own eye. Judgment begins with me. That is right judgment. Well, how do we do that? I mean, what does that mean to take the log out of your own eye? Well, Paul says in the text in Romans, he says that God's kindness leads us to repentance. Repentance is the key to dealing with the lumber in our eyes. What is repentance? Well, repentance is essentially turning away from that which is killing us and that is destroying us and turning towards the one who can ultimately give us life and who can save us. See, oftentimes when we think about repentance, we think about it negatively. 
but this is largely because we confuse religious repentance with gospel repentance. And, and let me tell you about the difference here this morning. You see, with religion, the purpose of repentance is to keep, keep God happy and to keep us out of trouble. So at its root, religious repentance is actually selfish and it's actually self-righteous. We're sorry for our sins, but we're mostly sorry because we got caught. And we're often living under this, this constant fear and duress of a wrathful God. Sometimes we even beat ourselves up because we have to convince God and we have to convince ourselves that we are worthy of forgiveness, which is ironic because here's the thing. If you are worthy of forgiveness, you do not need forgiveness. But this is how the religious mind works. But gospel repentance, it is strikingly different. Gospel repentance is, is a way that we repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ because we understand that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more and there's nothing that we have ever done to make God love us less. So, so there's both a bitterness and there is a sweetness to gospel repentance. It's bitter because you're more aware of your sins and your flaws, but it's sweet because you become more aware of God's grace and your acceptance in Christ Jesus. Gospel repentance ultimately leads us to worship. It is amazing. It is electrifying. It transforms the human spirit. You know, there's so many people that falsely believe that as you mature in Christ, you will repent less. That is not true. Because as you mature in Christ, you are going deeper into the gospel. And as you go in deeper into the gospel, you will actually repent more. Because God's kindness leads us to repentance. Did you know that repentance is a gift for the believer in Christ? It drives us deeper into the gospel, and it drives us deeper into the presence of Christ. <laughs> this is what Martin Luther meant when, when he wrote his 95 Theses, and he nailed them to the, to the door of the Wittenberg Church. What was his first thesis, one of 95, that sparked the Reformation? Here's what it was. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. For the believer in Christ, all of life is repentance because repentance is a great gift. And so Crosspoint, may we be a community that presses deeper into the gospel. And because of this, may we learn to judge lightly and may we begin to judge rightly. Well, hey, we're going to go into a, just a time of reflective prayer here this morning. Uh, it's going to be a couple of minutes uh, that we're going to give you. And, you know, in, in, a, in a busy and hectic life, it's often difficult to find time to just pause and pray. And we want to give you that opportunity this morning. Uh, so what I want you to consider as we go into this time of prayers is, is what has God been saying to you this morning? What has he been pressing on your heart as we've dove into his word together? You know, God is for you. God welcomes you to come to him freely and to step into his grace and his acceptance this morning. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. So let's just take a couple minutes and to pause and to pray. What is God saying to you? And ultimately, what do you need to do about it? Let's pray.
So, Lord, today we turn our hearts to you and we honor and we praise you because you are a righteous God and you revealed yourself to us and you are just and you are good and you are patient and you are kind and you are loving. And we thank you for the gospel, for the good news that through Christ Jesus you um, have defeated sin and death and the grave and you are ultimately going to restore all things, including, including me. And God, our prayer is, God, would you just this week help put us back together, help fix us, that we may be a people who know you and honor you and love you and shine your love and your light to the world, that, God, we might experience that grace for ourselves this week and so be able to deliver it to others. Thank you. Thank you for your love and your goodness. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.